At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are talking to Rita Liberti and Maria Verdi about their book, Gridiron Gourmet. No, it is not a cookbook. It is a sociological examination of gender and cooking culture among football tailgaters. Fascinating stuff. Wildly interesting and entertaining. Loved the book. And I'm so excited to talk to Rita and Maria for this. Also, I have some choice words about Kyrie Irving, racism, and the city of Boston. Got to just stand up and just sit down awards and more. But first, let's talk to Rita and Maria. First and foremost, you know, I've already explained the book a little bit to our listeners, but really in, in your own words, it's such a fascinating topic. So just starting with you, Rita, what is this book about in your mind? Like if, if you were in an elevator with somebody and they said, what the heck did you just write about? What would you say? It's, it's basically us trying to figure out what the heck is going on in this enormous space, right? It takes up so much space in terms of like men, gender, food, and football. Like how does this all come together and how do we make sense of it? Because as, as we can maybe talk about, we were so intrigued by it. Like, what is going on here? There are all these men are cooking on the blacktop, you know, and they're they're so invested in it in ways that we just were blown away by. And so we just had to figure out what was going on 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 that blacktop. Mm. Maria, what do you got? Yeah, you're right. Um, it's this, you know, to see like Rita said, all these men cooking right in doing this thing that we usually think of women is, is taking control of. And yet they're out here doing it on these blacktops in and around, uh, you know, surrounding areas of these um, football stadiums. And so it's this huge phenomenon that, you know, people don't really cover. We don't know a lot about what's been going on. So we just wanted to yeah, get in there and, and try to figure that out. And so people have said to us, Dave, well, so what? It's men grilling out. That's what they do all the time. You're writing about, right. and it's like, but yeah, when you really, you really take a close look at what's going on, it's not just grilling. I mean, these men are are top to bottom. The rest, you know, so soup to nuts. I mean, basically, you know, like they are, they they're, are. They're developing the menu. They are going to the grocery store, the Costco. They are budgeting. They are coordinating. Google spreadsheets with their crew about who's going to bring what and cook what. And um, it's from in this from week to week. And they start like in January, some of these crews talking about what they're going to do the following season. Yeah. Amazing. I, I have so many follow up questions, but I'm going to try to stick to yeah. the structure of the interview that I had planned. I, I still want to jump into stuff, but but Rita, at one point uh, in the intro to the book, you wrote a decade ago, if someone had suggested that a project, much less a book length project on the culture of football tailgating was in my future, I would have thought them daft. <laughs> well, what 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 made you go ahead with it then? Like, what what was it that where it clicked with you that, you know, this is more than just a, a lecture I want to give. This is more than an article. I want to write a book. Yeah, it was really a couple of things, Dave. I mean, well, it's a lot of things, really, but. Um, some of it, I think, was just getting the chance to work with Maria. I mean, that, you know, she's a great cook and I love to eat. So that yeah. really, that really helped it along. Um, but it was a lot of like smaller things. The whole Guy Fieri thing with Tailgate Warriors, the Food Network show really sparked us. Trudy had read an article in the New York Times about that and um, shared with me, you know, I think you and Maria got to write about that. And so that was, that was sort of, our start of it. And then when we started to get into tailgate warriors, just analyzing the, the TV show, we realized 
But there was so much more to the story that if we just presented tailgate warriors, it was only going to give like a sliver of what was going on with football tailgating and that we needed to move it out of that one article and write this larger book. Um, that it was just too much to do in one article. Mm. Maria, did you have an aha moment where you said, this is the project I want to invest uh, years of my time in? <laughs> it wasn't just one moment. Um, you know, like Rita was saying, it was, you know, a bunch of things just started to come together for us. And, you know, one, it was, you know, the opportunity to be able to do this project with Rita and, you know, have fun writing together. And as she said, eating together, <laughs> um, mm. going on all our meetups around the East Bay um, to do our, our research. Right. Um, <laughs> and yeah, at first it was okay. We'll dig into this TV show and tailgate warriors with Guy Fieri. And, you know, fortunately they were taping an episode in Oakland at the Coliseum at a preseason game between the Raiders and the 49ers. So we could actually go and watch the taping, watch the competition as it unfolded in real time. And then we could start to go around and talk to the, you know, tailgaters who were there, even though it was preseason. And this blew us away that there was like the one crew and it's the cover photo on the book. Um, this group got there, Rita, was it like 6 a.m. that morning to yeah. roast a whole pig and and have it ready for before the game started. And they were putting this effort into a preseason exhibition game. And um, that was some really good pork too, yeah. by the way. Yeah. So uh, we just, we had some really interesting conversations in that moment after the taping. And we thought, okay, let's, let's present this at a conference. Let's write an article about it. And then it just kept growing. We kept thinking, wait, there's more here. Hey, let's do another conference presentation. And then, you know, folks at these conferences would be like, hey, you guys, are you doing a book? Because, you know, you have a lot here and they'd start to share stories with us or send us photos of something they saw related to tailgating. So, you know, all of that just kind of coalesced and it wasn't one aha moment, but it was a, hey, this is pretty cool. Let's keep going with it. Oh, so many questions. You know, I, I go to a lot of basketball games uh, and you never see people pull up to the game and pull out a big, you know, smoker and cook before the, the basketball game. Why is, and how did tailgating become so associated with American football? Yeah, so this was, uh, you know, we, our chapter one in our book is about a history of tailgating and we did not expect to write a history of tailgating. It wasn't initially part of our chapter outline for the book. But as we started to want to learn more about the history, we thought, okay, what if, what have people been writing about? But we found out no one, no one had written a history of tailgating. So. Mm -hmm we thought we'd take a little shot at it. And, and what, what we find is really, you know, kind of fascinating that, that football, of course, American football, late, late 19th century, tight, tight association with manhood and masculinity. I mean, maybe more than any other organized sport in that moment, really, as a team sport. And so that, that link was quickly there. And what also gave it this really kind of cool, unique spin is that, um, the place of the automobile in relation to early football history. Mm. So like, like in 1906, right, you got the big universities on the East Coast who really started the game of football, like Yale and Harvard and all those places. You've got, you've got 82,000 cars coming to New Haven in 1906 to watch a football game, right? Wow. And so, Dave, you've got this, this mesh at this intersection of like, there were, there were like, you know, there weren't there weren't that many cars on the road then, right? There, so most of them are at the football game in New Haven. <laughs> thinking, like, what percentage of the region's cars were at that game? Yeah, and you look at some of the press reports from the period, the newspaper accounting, and it's just like, yes, it's a sea of people and a sea of automobiles, right? And and so you get this link between the already kind of masculine environment of American football. You get people motoring to the games they get to a small town like new haven and where are they all going to go to eat like they have to come in early just to get physically get to the game so they end up picnicking on the hillsides you know outside of the stadium um and it, it really gets its it gets its start 
just by a sort of matter of practicality. Well, we have to leave so early just to get our vehicle to the game, so we got to take a lunch, you know? So, Maria, I'd, lo I'd love to hear from you on this, but is, mm -hmm. is it a correct thing to say that because of the absence of urban development around Yale University is one of the foundational reasons why tailgating even exists? I think, I, I don't know, I don't, uh, I'm not sure I go there because we do see some urban centers, although I think, Maria, we didn't find much in terms of uh, major city stuff happening. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Dave, I guess, I mean, I, I think there is something to that, that this, just the literal space given mm -hmm. to allow something like this to happen. The same things were happening out in Palo Alto at Stanford, right, where there are wide mm -hmm. open spaces and very, yes, and very little structure in place to handle an influx of tens of thousands of people um, mm -hmm. that it kind of grew out of, it grew out of that, right? Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and where up to that time in history do you see 80,000 people even gather anywhere? Really? I mean, so you have this yeah. concentration of cars, the concentration of people. Yeah. The need for food and nourishment. I mean, the football almost seems ancillary to these much larger construction right. going on around it. It's fascinating. Oh, um, yeah. It's this whole social spectacle that develops around mm -hmm. the athletic spectacle on the field. Now, that's a great way to put it. Um, how has tailgating changed over time in terms of gender? I mean, you remarked at the start of the interview about what, what a macho terrain this is, but Reading your book, it wasn't always that way, was it? No, not at all. Um, and it it follows with how domestic life was structured by and around gender. So as Rita was mentioning, we have folks, you know, getting in their autos, uh, automobiles to go to the tailgates, having to be there early, so they pack a lunch. Well, who's going to pack the lunch? Mm -hmm. um, that's usually that's was women doing that work, and it was you know, what you'd expect in picnic baskets. And, and Rita, what was some of the fare, the sardine and butter sandwich? Which is, uh, yeah, unappetizing. Boy, boiled yeah. salmon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, thermoses of coffee uh, eventually. But it was so, you know, women were had that role of prepping the picnic basket to bring to um, the tailgate. And it wasn't even called the tailgate at that point, right? right. The football picnic um yeah, was, you're more likely to see that kind of uh, terminology. Uh, and you saw that in like the press of the day. So that was really the case easily through what the first two thirds of the 20th century, I would say. For sure. Was, yeah. yeah. I mean, Where, and then, you know, the, the whole sort of the advances made in terms of a, a portable grill that you could take that wasn't weighing a ton. Right. I mean, um, yeah. but that technology really doesn't become embedded in football culture until really in any critical way, the 1980s. Wow. I mean, yeah. A little bit in the sixties and seventies, you begin to see, you know, the, the weird guy in the corner who's got the little charcoal grill, you know, what's he doing right. over there? You know, like yeah, um, the, the lone hibachi on, in the parking lot at a game uh, in front of the stadium. Yeah. And a little bit of charcoal there. Um, and yeah, but Rita's right. It wasn't embedded. It wasn't really the thing until the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, it, so it was a gradual shift. Yeah. Rita, how do you, how do you understand the gradual shift? Like how does it go from becoming and why does it go from becoming women's sphere to men's sphere? Um, not, not that women don't tailgate and cook, but just the primary cultural mm -hmm. signifier is men do this how did it become that? Yeah, I think um, a couple things are going on here, right? I think the, the, in the second half of the 20th century, especially, I think women's, women's increasing place in the public sphere, especially the 70s, 80s, entering the workforce in higher numbers, higher education, they had been doing that all century long in huge numbers. And I think, as we argue in the book, and as others have argued too, right, there are fewer and fewer places for men to go to be men, you know? sort of these homosocial spaces. And while participating in sport on the field can provide men that, it's also in these off the field blacktop spaces and tailgating becomes a really important space, especially by the 1990s with the Food Network and the commercialization of tailgating, 
becomes a space for men to be with other men, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Beyond the game itself. And uh, we think it's really a response to, uh, again, this sort of more collective, large-scale entrance of women increasingly in male space, you know, mm -hmm. in, in other spaces. Wow. So it's about men trying to claim more space within a space football that they already see as theirs in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good way to put that. Wow. And then, yeah, and then certainly by the tail end of the 20th century, the turn of the 21st century, they go big. They go big time, men, masculinity. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. In yeah. that sphere. What, what about whiteness? How does that play into it? Do you... Do you believe that tailgating is a racial signifier of the white fan or is your experience this is something that uh hits all races ethnicities and cultures in terms of their relationship to football that's a great question and go, go ahead, ahead Rita. we 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 think it was from what we saw it was incredibly racial segregated it segregated. Was very segregated spaces not that we yeah, didn't yeah. see, I mean, obviously in places like Oakland, you saw, you saw plenty of folks of color. It was really quite a diverse crowd. But in many of the other spaces, we, you know, we talk a little bit about this in the book. Um, it was like a sea of whiteness. Yes. Um, yeah. And in places where yeah. you'd expect yeah. that, you know, you're oh, sorry, in Buffalo. Sorry. In Buffalo, in New England, um, Oregon. Um, it was, Yeah very white um the folks who were doing the tailgating the cooking on the blacktop um more diverse groups in oakland as rita said um but and that that plays out in other representations of tailgating too in yeah. pop culture so if you look at how tailgating is represented in cookbooks in tv in movies it's it yeah it, it is kind of a white signifier um, and when you have folks who come into those spaces who aren't white, uh, they're kind of cast as interlopers right? mm -hmm. or sort of made to seem exotic and not exotic in a good way at all. Yeah. What about, what about the, the cultural role of what is, in fact, cooked itself? I mean, do you see a lot of grilled tofu out there? Is there <laughs> or is this like where, where meat goes? Well, literally where meat goes to die. Is this... Is this a, a carnivorous culture in almost its entirety? And what does that tell us about tailgating? <laughs> yes, on the carniv carnivorous culture, for sure. Tofu, wow, what a great way to get yourself kicked out of a tailgate in most places. Right. Uh, Rita, tell the story from um, uh, the San Francisco tailgate in the um, oh. tailgaters. Yeah, we came upon young a, group, guys. a group of young guys, and they had a, they had a relatively small tailgate, but it was you know they were there out there every week, and um, one of the young men who I think was if not vegetarian, I'm saying pretty close to being a vegetarian. He'd say you know basically he had to sneak what it was it carrots. He had to sneak carrots into the burgers, Maria, or well, first it was he got a, he was a little marginalized by his buddies because he did turkey burgers, and then. <laughs> To make it even worse, he snuck carrots into the turkey. Burger. It was mm. like a, they about kicked me out for that. Yeah. So, yeah, um, carnivorous uh, meat was at the forefront of just about all the cooking we saw. Um, yeah. Serious cooking on the blacktop, for sure. It was the center of the menus that we saw. And, you know, yeah. we talked to some groups who were so heavily invested in what they were doing. Like, they could have gone off the blacktop and had and maybe and some of them kind of do have careers as like professional caterers. That's how um, wow solid their setup was on the blacktop. Um, so yeah. and meat was the center, not only in terms of literally it it occupied center space, but what it was prepared on and in. Right? Yes, the equipment that was used to make to make meat even more of a spectacle than it already was to bring a whole pig to a stadium. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And it's these gargantuan grills and cookers and smokers and um, yeah, yeah. These these guys were hauling some equipment into these spaces. Mm -hmm. One of which it, it 
takes more prominence than the game itself, really, especially if they're getting there at 6 a.m. It's it's more about that mm -hmm. than the game. I, I think for the for the elite tailgate, we'll call them elite tailgaters, the guys who are totally invested in it. I mean, that was definitely the case. Going to yeah. the game, many of them didn't even go. I mean, it was. And if they could, if the if the city or if the organization, the athletic organization, would allow them to stay in the parking lot mm -hmm. throughout the game, they would, and just watch it on the TV. Mm -hmm. Well, I keep thinking of if you ever saw the movie uh, Big Fan with Patton Oswalt about how they would go out and tailgate, and then just they wouldn't go to the game and just listen to the radio yeah. in the parking lot the whole time. Right. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask uh, also, you, you talked about all these different regions, the Bay Area, New England, Buffalo, the, the kind of food that's cooked. Is that affected by region or is this a uniform process that uh, uh, what's cooked in Buffalo is not that different than what's cooked in Oakland? Oh, there's definitely regional differences. Um, so in Oakland, Maybe the way we saw the most diverse food to go along with the most diverse group of tailgaters, I would say. Um, so meat certainly central, but you have you know different shades of <laughs> meat. Um, there are a number of uh, Latino groups uh, who are there, or folks who are affiliated with say a, a Mexican restaurant in a, in a town close to the Bay Area who would just kind of come over and uh, do some sort of a replication of, you know, their restaurant cooking. So you'd see, you know, more like carnitas and um, al pastor and um, in addition to like ribs and burgers and, you know, uh, tri-tips, things like that. Um, and let's see. Remember, and then, go Maria, ahead. In the, in the Tailgate Warriors show, when we first started analyzing that, yeah. one, of the things, one of the things that really went to the surface really quickly was how food was related to place, right? And so yeah, we would yeah. see we would see these regional differences. So so what they were what they were putting on the grill or how they were even performing that whole thing in Buffalo, kind of gritty working class, you know, they're they're putting the brats and the bacon on a hibachi that versus like in San Francisco, Seattle, it was just mm -hmm. it was not only what they were cooking sometimes was different, but how they were doing it. Um, and they often there's banter and joking between and among cities about, mm. you know, what what's getting cooked and how it reflects back on how the city sees itself or how the team sees right, itself. Right. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was that was also kind of interesting. And that's actually where race and ethnicity comes in as well, because yeah, in yeah. like the Minnesota Vikings and the, the one team from Tailgate Warriors was a Minnesota team. Uh, the, the, the folks who were cooking were a Minnesota team. And they talked about how bland the food was, how white the food was, you know, versus the colorful, spicy New Orleans cuisine. And so, mm -hmm. so how place identity, right? How we see and how we see ourselves and how others see us gets taken up in the food. And that mm -hmm. becomes another way of like placing identity onto these spaces. It was really, it was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see gender and identity intersecting. So in New Orleans or Louisiana. So we saw it in the, the Tailgate Warriors episode Rita's referring to, because it was the New Orleans fans versus the Minnesota fans. And the New Orleans folks, spicy, Cajun, Creole, seafood, gator, right? You know, mm -hmm. what you'd expect from that region of the country. Um, yeah, and Rita we'll can talk in a minute about going to uh, LSU and Southern uh, to, to um, you know, carry on our research there. Um, but we saw this, you know, usually it's meat masculinity and meat is at the center of the tailgate. So the tailgate is the ultimate masculine endeavor is here it is at the football game, the most masculine of our sports. Um, but that cover extended to seafood in places like New Orleans or Louisiana, where it's part of the culture. So then to cook seafood well, becomes a masculine signifier, um, right? And yeah. then I'll, I'll throw it to Rita to talk about the, the guys at LSU with their 40-gallon vats for the gumbo, with the shrimp and the ah. duck. And yeah, so I had this really interesting day uh, in Baton Rouge 
um, this was this was the Saturday before the 2016 presidential election. Okay, which mm-hmm. wow, that yeah. was a time to be in Baton Rouge. I gotta say. Um, so I go to LSU first. There, I, I I forget now. I can't remember who they're playing. Um, but they, it was it was spectacle beyond belief. I had in all the tailgating spaces we had been to up to that point, I'd never seen anything like this. So quickly it became clear to me that while there were going to be like 100,000 people in the stadium for the game, there were going to be 150,000 people outside in the days leading up to and the day of the game. It was, I, I, it, it went on for blocks and blocks and blocks. And I think one of the most intriguing parts was walking into this smaller, really elite space where the biggest RVs, the biggest motorhomes were found. And it was closest to the stadium, so prime real estate. Here are these mostly mostly white uh, LSU fans um, pulling up in million dollar, two million dollar motorhomes, and just the spreads. I mean, and you know they're paying they're paying a lot of money just to occupy the space, right? I mean, it can be it can be eight thousand dollars a year just to have a tailgating a place to park on the tailgate. Um, and it was it was intense at LSU. So I stayed there for several hours, and then I went across town to Southern, the historically black college, and they were having their homecoming game, much much smaller scale, whole different vibe. Um, there is where we actually I actually saw two of the prominent women actually at one of the tailgates, one of the biggest tailgates. The women were actually in charge of the tailgate. It was very fascinating. Um, but that was just like the juxtaposition of those two spaces really was an intense day for me. Um, and it illustrated the diversity of tailgating experience, right? Um, yeah, it was, it was sharp. It was something. You, you have all these great stories from around the country. How easy or difficult was it to get people to talk to you? I mean, I think it, frankly, it takes a little bit of, uh, little bit of moxie for you for you both to just walk up to people who are doing this incredibly macho exercise that probably involves a close knit group of friends around them and sort of inserting yourself in there and being like hey can I talk to you I'm doing a book like how easy was it to get folks to talk um it was pretty actually on the whole it was pretty easy and that's I think one of the other things we talk about in the book in the last chapter is how Tailgating space is both this exclusionary space where, as you say, people have found their community. They know who their friends are, right? And so it can be really tight-knit, hard to enter. And yet, on the other hand, it's totally open. The community is, is it, it bends, it yields, it grows, it's open. If you walk up to someone and say, hey, could I have a burger? Oftentimes, if you didn't know the guy, he'd say, sure, grab one off the grill. I mean, so it's at times exclusionary and other times really, really inclusive. I don't know about you, Maria, but I thought for the most part we were welcomed and people were eager to talk about. Interesting. They were they yeah. were eager to talk about what they were doing on the blacktop. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we felt. I think the thing that we maybe felt the most tentative about was here. These are people who are like they're doing work. And they have to get a meal out before they have to, in some cases, like close up to then go into the stadium. So we were just, you know, mindful of kind of their time and not wanting to take away from their um, socializing. But they were gracious uh, by and large. And once they saw we were interested, um, were, you know, willing to talk and explain what they were doing and, you know, share history with us. Um, Some people were very gracious about sharing recipes. Um, Some of the LSU tailgaters, Rita found, you know, emailed a full recipe for, was it the duck gumbo? Yeah. And, and the cell phone number said, if you run into any troubles, just give us a, you know, <laughs> give a call while you're making it. Um, <clears throat> there were a couple of people, I remember being at the University of Tennessee and I was asking one tailgater about his recipe for a rub and a marinade for, um, I think his ribs and a smoker. And he, he would share like, well, there's this and there's this in it. And then he'd stop. And he's like, it was clear he wasn't going to give me the entire recipe. Yeah. Um, so there's you know, a little proprietary here and there. But for the most part, people were pretty open. And some, you know, we wanted to be able to have fuller conversations with some of these serious tailgaters 
So they, um, you know, some agreed to talk with us off the blacktop and that, you know, added so much to our book, being able to have those in-depth conversations. It's amazing. And in an yeah. odd way, kind of hopeful, mm. like the idea that people yeah. be so open and, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and themselves. Um, yeah. You've been so generous with your time, but, but I, I have to ask, uh, I know this isn't the subject of the book by any stretch, and maybe this is more of a Guy Fieri question, but what was the best thing you ate and where? Oh, Jesus. Oh, that's a good question. <sighs> I, at Southern, and, uh, feel free I have to, to say, <laughs> I know it's <laughs> a it, it, it is tough. It is tough because, Dave, I'm telling you, the food was incredible. But at Southern, I had these uh, boiled turkey legs. Uh, everything everything's in the in the bat, right? So you're in the big pot. You got the boiled turkey legs. You got the corn on the cob. You got the potatoes in there. Everything is just stewing. I mean, it, that that has to be one of my favorite favorite meals. Um, wow. But that's that's saying something because there were lots of them. They were good. Yeah, for me, I think I'd I'd single out the um, the a crew at um, a San Francisco 49ers game, the Third Rail Niners, and these guys and they essentially build a, a mini kitchen in the parking lot before each home game. And so they do a killer um, mac and cheese oh. with bacon infused oh. in it. And, yeah. you know, it's a smoker. I um, know actually, and I think, oh, they smoke chicken and then shred the chicken and that goes in yeah. with it. And then there's another sesame chicken dish from one of those guys that um, people talked about it's like this is the crack chicken and he can't not make it for a tailgate. Um, those two things right there, that mac and cheese and that um, sesame chicken were um, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And then I have amazing. to, we, I want to call out Nancy from Stanford because <laughs> in, in our conversation about all these men tailgating and the machismo on the blacktop, we went to Stanford University's tailgate, and the person with the biggest grill on that blacktop was a woman, um, Nancy, who had tri-tips going and a pot of beans and, yeah. oh, my God, I, so much. But anyway, that piece of, I think it was tri-tip I had there, yeah. that was just, you know, otherworldly. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> what, what, what a fun book to write. My goodness. It was. I wish I could have helped you with research. <laughs> But, Come do the sequel. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I got to ask before you go, just because I ask this of every guest and I've um, people expect it at this point at the podcast. What music were you listening to as you went about writing this book? Did you have any musical inspirations while you went through the writing process or the road tripping process or whatever it is that you had to do to make this a reality? Oh. Maria, you're Dave. That's a. I hope this doesn't make the air because I'm not a. I'm not a musical type. But the music that I listen to day in and day out, piano instrumental. <laughs> so, great. So. No, that's great. I think people love hearing about that stuff because, uh, especially from writers, because uh, you know it, it can be a lonely pursuit. So having some background noise can be very important. What about you, Maria? Anything in particular? Yeah, I mean, I listen to a lot of different kinds of music. When it comes to writing, though, it typically has to be something instrumental because if I hear words, then I'm interested in what what they are and what they're saying. So when I'm writing, it's usually some kind of um, jazz. Um, And it'd be somebody like Charlie Hunter, Mm -hmm. uh, guitar, listen to him a lot, or some kind of like acoustic folk, somebody like Leo Kotke. And I'd say those were probably my two main soundtracks as I was writing. And that's, that's my writing note music. Right on. Well, the, the, the book, and it is a good one. Uh, although it might make you a little hungry. The book (laughs) is gridiron gourmet. And I'm so happy to have the authors here. Rita Liberti, Maria Verdi. Thank you so much for joining us here on the edge of sports podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure and an honor. Oh, Honor's mine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. 
This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, Boston Celtics general manager Danny Ainge probably said far more than he intended last week when responding to remarks by Kyrie Irving in advance of the Brooklyn Nets guards playoff game against the Boston Celtics. The powerhouse Nets were up two games to nothing and Ainge might have been better off doing some listening instead of talking ahead of last Friday's game. Irving's comments implied that Boston fans in their boos and jeers at players are known to spew racism. Hopefully we can just keep it strictly basketball, he said. There's no belligerence or racism going on, subtle racism and people yelling shit from the crowd. Ainge's response was, I've never heard any of that from any player that I've played with in my 26 years in Boston. That response made a lot of people wonder what exactly Ainge has chosen to hear both as a player and an executive over the last quarter century. After his remarks, Celtics guard Marcus Smart shared that he has heard racial slurs from the Boston faithful, saying, I've heard a couple of things. It's hard to hear that and then have them support us as players. It's kind of sickening. Celtics coach Brad Stevens also gave a thoughtful response, validating and respecting Kyrie's experience. Now, as for Kyrie Irving, he's proven himself to be a master at using news conferences he would clearly rather avoid to make certain people as uncomfortable as possible. Last week, he spoke about the importance of valuing Palestinian lives. This week, the fraught racial history in Boston sports. There is certainly some personal history intertwined with the political here. Irving played in Boston for two years with high expectations and disappointing results, meaning he's not exactly Mr. Popular in the city. He certainly seems to relish in tweaking this most tender and sensitive part of the white Boston sports fan's soul. Because if there's one way to get that demographic modeled with rage, it's to bring up the city's history of racism, now that racism continues to be reflected in the world of sports today. But whether Irving's remarks are meant to agitate the fans or provoke discussion, or both, there's something to be said about Boston's particular brand of racism in a country full of cities with racist foundations and legacies. Dorchester-born sports writer Howard Bryant probably said it best when he joined in the discussions that followed Irving's remarks, tweeting that what differentiates Boston from the rest, quote, is the deep history and acceptance of the idea that Boston equals white. Nobody else has been allowed to speak. White Boston is encouraged to be the only Boston. This idea that white Boston is encouraged to be the only Boston has infamously cemented itself into its sports culture. This is the town whose beloved Red Sox turned away Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays. The Red Sox were the last Major League Baseball team to integrate with the 1959 signing of Elijah Pumsey Green. This is the town that treated the great Bill Russell horribly during his career with the Celtics, when people broke into his home to vandalize and defecate. Russell once called Boston a flea market of racism. Throughout Russell's remarkable run of 11 championships in 13 years, the team didn't even average a sellout, not even close. In 2004, Major League Baseball player Barry Bonds said, Boston is too racist for me. I couldn't play there. That's been going on ever since my dad, Bobby Bonds, was playing baseball. I can't play like that. That's not for me, brother. When the reporter suggested that the racial climate has changed in Boston, Bonds responded, it ain't changing. It ain't changing nowhere. In recent years, there have been some shifts. One of the most outspoken NBA players against systemic racism has been Celtics all-star Jalen Brown and he doesn't seem to have suffered for it locally. Red Sox owner John Henry had the name of famed Yawkey Way changed due to the former Red Sox owner's history of keeping the team strictly all white. So yes, there is a reckoning going on, even if it has met its fair share of resistance among the faithful. 
It is highly possible that Irving is playing a psychological cat and mouse game with a city with which disdain appears to be mutual. Irving no doubt knows he has the luxury of this pleasure because his team is stacked and up against the ailing Celtics, at least as of this reading. While Boston is without Brown due to a wrist injury, Irving rolls into town as a finals favorite alongside two future Hall of Famers in Kevin Durant and James Harden. Irving smells the end of this series and is acting accordingly. And if he can start an uncomfortable political debate or two, all the better. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to a former NBA player, professional basketball player, Rod Benson, who wrote a tremendous, tremendous column for the San Francisco Chronicle about mental health and being a professional athlete. It was a total eye-opener. Total tribute, by the way, to Christina Carl, who's the new sports editor over there at the San Francisco Chronicle, that there's space for this kind of writing. And I just want to read you one little section from Rod Benson's piece. He wrote, My arms and wrists are littered with scars from pesky guards trying to steal the ball and drawing blood. So many that I can't assign a single scar to a specific memory. After ramping up my therapy sessions, I wonder how many mental scars I have too. The kind that don't show up with a physical mark, end quote. And then Rod Benson goes through it. Like all the things you would never think about, like the travel schedule, uh, the amount of rubber chicken banquets that players need to go through, especially when they're not superstars and can turn away from those kinds of things. There's so much pressed onto athletes when they're not actually playing. We don't even know the half of it. I mean, it reminds me of a friend of mine in academia who once said about why he hated his job. He said, I love teaching. It's everything else I can't stand. That's not dissimilar to what I got out of reading Rod Benson's, that he loved, loved basketball. It was just everything surrounding it that made his life very, very difficult. People should find this piece. I've put it out on the Edge of Sports Twitter feed, but check it out. Rod Benson, San Francisco Chronicle, mental health, playing pro ball. Also at Just Stand Up Award this week, Stand up. Uh, I want to give one out to the youth of Yangon, who Yangon is in Myanmar. And the youth of Yangon, where they were holding up signs urging Myanmar football players who were beaten by the Japanese team in a World Cup qualifier match to stand with the people and against the military junta. And they were holding up signs calling upon the players to stand with democracy and stand against oppression. I don't know. I just thought that was incredibly brave of of them, and I wanted to put that in there. The Just Sit Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down is an obvious one for anyone who's been following news in the past week. The Sit Your Ass Down Award, it goes to racist fans. And I put the word fans in quotes. You had the quote-unquote fan in Philadelphia dumping popcorn on Russell Westbrook. You had a fan spitting on Trey Young in New York. And then you had fans just straight up in Utah going with the straight racial invective, spewing that garbage at the family of Ja Morant as the Memphis Grizzlies guard was in the process of dropping 47 points on Utah. The racism is real. And now as fans are being let back into the arena after a year and a half away and also after a year and a half where NBA players were very open and proud about their alignment 
with the fight against police violence and the fight for black lives, I think it looks like we're seeing a backlash, which some people predicted. When players were kneeling in the bubble last year, more than a few people said, I wonder if they would kneel if there were actual fans in the arena who could respond in a way that, shall we say, was more than a little racist and a little bit threatening. And you're seeing shards of that in the playoffs. And it's deeply, deeply disturbing. Um, and let me tell you something. Players are speaking out against it. You know, there's a hashtag, protect our players. And all of it has this very, very eerie, eerie echo of what we've seen for years in European soccer. And I got to tell you, the players aren't going to put up with racism from these fans. So mark my words. These fans, the racists, and I hate calling them fans, but if you see something as a fan, say something. Call one of the uh, ushers, uh, do something, because they are going to ruin the fan experience in basketball, absolutely ruin it. The players aren't going to put up with it, and we're going to end up being like, like Europe, where you know there are some games that have to have empty arenas as punishment to the fan base for being racist. I mean, we're perilously close to a fan throwing a banana on the court are some of the things that have become all too common over the years in European soccer and you know what <sighs> maybe that's where we are you know maybe that's what it'll take maybe it'll take having empty arenas to actually discipline white fans to not be racist but man it's a downer to see US sports go down this road so the only way that I can see us not ending up in a European soccer situation is for us, and I guess I'm talking directly to white fans here, like check your own. You see it, you say something, you stand up to it. Don't be a bystander to racism and violence. Otherwise, my goodness, we're headed down a very European road. Now's the part of the show that we call Kaepernick Watch, the latest comings and goings regarding Colin Kaepernick. I don't have anything regarding Colin Kaepernick to share, just to say that I'm very excited because all the Kaepernick folks are reading, uh, the folks around him are reading this book that uh, I have coming out this fall called The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Folks should pre-order the book. I'm hoping that we can make the book, which is a, which is a, a compilation of stories of young people who took a knee and how it affected their lives. What I'm really hoping for is that it becomes something that's integrated into what Colin Kaepernick does uh, and in terms of the camps, in terms of working with kids, because I really think the book will inspire young people uh, to realize that you know, they're not powerless, they can do something, and that the platform of sports can be also be a platform for justice. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much to my guests, Rita and Maria, the book, Gridiron Gourmet, great title. Uh, that's Rita Liberti and Maria Veri. Thank you also to the producer of this podcast, David Tegaboo. Thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, if you like the show, please, please, please leave a rating, write a little review, do something that feeds the algorithm that makes people actually find this show and listen to it. For everybody out there listening, we love you, but please mask up, please, please, please be safe, and please, please, please be frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.